welcome. It's great to have you all here. Are you uh, going forward? You know, sometimes that's all about perspective. You ever thought about you can't stand backward on the stairs because either, either way you're going, you're, that's the way you're going, right? <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's uh, engineers that are sometimes backwards. Now, wait, wait for a minute. That's when they go on the Disneyland rides. They're the ones sitting backwards to watch how they did all the special effects. That's how you spot an engineer. Next time you're going on a ride, keep an eye out for that. All right, well, it's time to turn the time over to someone who always goes forward down the stairs. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. What if we could control lightning? like Thor, right? <laughs> It'd be pretty amazing, right? Well, some researchers in Australia have been working on a new way to control lightning, but instead of a hammer, they're using a laser to control lightning. And um, this is still in the pre preliminary stages, but it has a pretty huge potential. First, let's talk a little bit about uh, what causes lightning and how this could work. If you look at this picture, this is a lightning strike. It happens to be in Australia. And uh, it's really hard to predict where lightning is going to hit and uh, when it's going to hit. And so it's a pretty big deal. Remember a long time ago, uh, someone, it was Benjamin Franklin, I believe, that came up with the idea that we could put lightning rods on the tops of the houses to protect them from lightning. And originally, the idea was it would disperse the electricity so there wouldn't be lightning strikes. But then they found out that it actually causes the lightning strikes to hit there more often instead of the house. So it was good either way. <laughs> and so in a way, that's starting to control lightning, but really not, not in a very big way. And uh, let's take a closer look at how lightning actually works. When there's a thunderstorm, that's when we get most of our lightning, Inside of that big thundercloud, there's a whole bunch of updrafts and downdrafts. That's the air moving up and then air coming down. And uh, a lot of time what's coming down is the precipitation and stuff. Well, that process inside of the thunderstorm causes this separation of the positive and the negative charge. And really, when we say negative charge, we're talking about the electrons, right? So we get a more concentrated amount of electrons in the lower half of the cloud than in the higher half. And we can get lightning going from one cloud to another cloud or from one cloud to the sky. And then, uh, of course, what we see the most of here on the ground is from the cloud to the ground. And when you have that uh, formation starting to happen, we start getting a negative charge in the lower half of the cloud. Then the charge in the ground starts to become more positive because it drives away the negative charge in the ground. Sometimes if you're down there on the ground, you can feel that tingling feeling, and maybe your hair starts to stand on end a little bit. That's a sign that you want to go inside. <laughs> yeah. They, they say that uh, when you hear, when the thunder rolls, go indoors, you know, because if you can hear the thunder, then the lightning could probably strike where you are which is a pretty amazing when you think about it. It can go really, really far from the thunderstorm. And uh, thunderstorms aren't the only way to make lightning. In fact, uh, we get lightning sometimes from volcanic eruptions. There's a huge updraft from that. And uh, a lot of times there's a, 
a lot of fumes and things, and it can cause a lot of lightning. And then recently, we've had quite a bit of dry lightning in places like Australia and on the west coast of the United States. And that dry lightning is especially dangerous because the ground can be all dry and all the, the dry plants on the ground, and they get hit by lightning. And guess what that does? It starts a fire. And uh, that brings me to the last way that you can cause lightning, and that's from really large fires. You can get so much updraft from the heat of the fire that can actually cause more lightning. And they had this happen in Australia where they had more forest fires started because of lightning from one forest fire that was already going. So it's a pretty big deal. And if we could control exactly where the lightning goes, we can't put a lightning rod on every tree, right? <laughs> but we could, if we could control it and have it go away from the dry forest, then we could save a lot of forest fires, perhaps. And we could protect a lot of property. So let's take a closer look at how we could control it. Uh, but the thing we got to remember, if we look at that picture again, there's that charge difference, the positive and the negative, and the lightning is just a discharge, trying to equal those out. And so that's going to happen. All we got to do is fi to figure out how to have it happen exactly where we want that discharge. Okay, so uh, let's kind of look at their setup. This example shows the experiment that the researchers were using, and they have a special kind of laser. They call it a hollow laser sometimes, but it can actually hold particles in it. And some people have tried to control lightning with really high-powered lasers, which is kind of dangerous by itself, but they were using a laser that's only a few hundred milliwatts, so it's a little teeny one. But it's able to heat up the particles that are held inside of the laser beam, and those heated particles are what are guiding the discharge. Uh, let's take a look at their setup of how they put the particles in. They were actually using little graphene microparticles, and they would inject them into their laser beam between those two electrodes. And uh, I'm going to show you a little video of their laser discharging. Okay, watch right here. You can see the two electrodes. And you can see it going there. And uh, if we were to fire this without the laser heating those particles, the laser beam would be all over the place like you might have seen in one of those electric balls, you know. But because of that beam, they can control it because they are heating those particles with the beam. They can control exactly where the laser goes. It's pretty cool. Now, there is a little problem. Okay, maybe a couple or a few. <laughs> That's not outside. When they take that outside, they're going to have to figure out how to get particles that they can heat up in their beam and things. So there's a lot, of more, a lot more to experiment with and develop. But the idea is pretty amazing. And to use a little teeny laser like that would make it so it's not so dangerous. And potentially, it could make a really big difference. Uh, but there are also some really neat applications for this technology in other fields. There are some manufacturing applications where if you could control a lightning beam, you could do a lot with it. Or maybe even some medical applications. One of the ideas the researchers had was to use this as an electronic scalpel almost, which uh, sounds pretty scary, but you know, knives cutting you are pretty scary too, so <laughs> maybe it's a good idea. But anyway, there are a lot of applications, and if they can get it perfected, maybe I could be the next Thor. You know? well, okay, maybe not, but <laughs> that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you.
Now it's time for a breakthrough moments in science with Tobias. Well, last week we got to learn from Dr. Billings about that optimism curve. Do you remember that? Where you're just so excited about the new thing you're going to do and then he Okay, he talked about it much more dignified than that. But <laughs> the optimism curve, where you have this idea, an invention, or something you want to achieve, and then when you start getting into it, it starts setting in, and the reality begins to hit. We start to realize, oh, the cost, oh, the other issues I didn't know about, oh, somebody got hurt, oh, my uncle died. Wait, anything could happen, okay? Any, whatever makes you stop and get stuck. And, you know, you, you get to decide when you're there, when that moment comes, when you're in your office and they come and say, I'm sorry, but this project is pretty much dead. It's impossible. Do you go, okay, turn the light off? Or do you go, bum, 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 and they all look at you. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, that's Mission Impossible in case you didn't know. Okay, it's a bunch of movies where Tom Cruise runs around, okay? And then he runs around some more, okay? But he doesn't give up. He keeps running, okay? <laughs> but the point is, stay, stay on target here. The point is, when you get to the bottom of that curve, what do you do? And that's when it really starts to separate out so many from the people who are successful. And tonight we're going to talk about a breakthrough that falls into that category, which most, most of these breakthroughs seem to fall into that category. And this is talking about a company named Boeing. And their adventure in trying to transition their industry. Now, Boeing was an airplane manufacturer, designer, and a lot of their work was for the military. In fact, pretty much all of their work was for the military. They did a few things before or during that time. This is in the 40s and 50s. Uh, they tried to get into things like commercial airline, where they tried to make passenger airplanes for the public to ride, and it never really was very successful but they made a lot of airplanes for the military. Well, they wanted, coming out of World War II, they wanted to really get involved with airline and public transportation. And hopefully the, the war and things were dying down, and so now we need something new, a new industry to really take, take on. So they wanted to start providing planes and making planes for the public. Now, most planes back then were prop planes. So, like on this picture, you can see this is actually a public transport plane, so you could get on this airplane and it would fly with propellers. You can see those two propellers on the wings. And that was the public transportation of flying at the time, for, for, for the most part. And in the military, they had something else. And this something else was what Boeing wanted to use for a public transportation, and that was a jet engine. So not a propeller that spins and pushes the air through. If you look at these two pictures, so we have propeller and we have jet engine. And basically a really quick explanation, um, with a propeller, you know, you're, you're pulling that air and pulling it through and pushing it out and you're creating that, that force. You're pushing the airplane. And this is great. It, obviously it worked really well. You could get fast enough to actually stay in the air. But then once you get high enough or too high, I should say, and the air starts getting thin, you start going over like 10,000 feet and higher, then prop planes start to get more limited because there's less air. The air is more thin up there. So there's not as much air for those blades to do that work. 
And if you get too high, you won't be able to stay in the air. So that was a limitation. You couldn't get as high. You also couldn't go nearly as fast as with the jet engines. Now with the jet engines, basically uh, a really simple version. If you think about like blowing up a balloon and then you let it go and goes everywhere, that propelling force that's going on where it's pushing that compressed air out is propelling that balloon. And it's similar with a jet engine. It takes air and it compresses it. And when it pushes it out on the other side, it's not just the air gone through and comes out. It's actually compressed the air and there's actually a combustion that goes on inside of that jet engine. And when it comes out, it's like a, almost a controlled explosion coming out the back. And the thrust that you can get from that is incredible. So Boeing has this technology. They had made planes for the military with this. So they wanted to make an airplane, a jet, not for a one fighter to fly around, but that could hold over 100 people. And think of what you could do. So as they started exploring this, they started designing one. And one of the first decisions they made was, we're going to change the wings from straight out to swept. So if you look at this, you can see straight. The middle one is swept. That last one's funky. Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's forward swept. We're not going to get into that. But this al allowed for less drag. And on some jets that can get up to the, near the speed of sound, it actually allowed the wings to handle getting up to that speed and the pressure that comes from getting to the speed of sound so that not all of the wing at once was impacted by it, but it would kind of work down the wing, and so it would be able to handle it better. But they decided to go with a swept uh, wing style for this jet they were going to make. But they needed a project to be able to do this. It's a lot of money to make a jet that big. But good news, the, the US Air Force put out an announcement, and they said, we need a new plane. Okay, we have all these fighter jets that fly really fast. Okay, there's like one or two guys in there. But we don't want to land and fill up and then go back up. Some of these missions, we don't have time in and we don't want to use all that fuel that it takes to go down and then come all the way back up. We want to fuel midair. And they had airplanes that they could use to try and carry fuel and connect to the jet and fill it midair. But those jets were so much faster than a lot of their big tanker plane. So they said, we want a new tanker plane. And so they said, okay, businesses, companies that make planes, give us your bid. Tell us what you want to do. Well, Boeing jumped on this and thought, well, what we could do is make our passenger plane, but not make it for passengers. We could make it for the Air Force, for a tanker. And then when we get the funding and they give us the funding for that, then we can go and make a passenger version. So they went to the Air Force and showed them their plan. We want to make this huge jet plane. They had already made some jets for the Air Force, but the Air Force was convinced. They were already envisioning that this would be a huge prop plane with propellers, and they did not buy into it, and they turned Boeing's uh, decision down. Boeing was sure, if you would just let us do it and give us the funding, we, we can prove this to you, but they were not interested. So they're, they're, we're getting down here on the bottom of that curve. We're, we're starting to get down into the... It's impossible. So Boeing decided to go for it. Wait, yeah, they're going to go build this jet with their own money. And it cost, in their, it, back then, it cost $16 million. It was about a quarter to a third of Boeing's net worth. They were going to build this one jet. A huge gamble. If this didn't work and the Air Force didn't like it, Boeing would probably go bankrupt. 
but they, they started on it. So they start building this jet. They make the swept wings. They put the, the jet engines on the wings. They did things on the flaps of the wings to give it more control. The flaps had a two hinge point, so they actually were, it was like double flaps. And then they had other mini sub flaps, you could say, and those were double. It, uh, I can't really get into it because I don't really understand it all. But it's cool, okay? <laughs> Tom is running, okay? That's all that matters. But it allowed them to have a lot of control because when you're going that fast, being able to maintain control is a huge deal. And when it's this huge plane, how do you maintain control when you're going that fast? So they get a prototype ready. And here's a picture of it coming out. They called it the Dash 80. And this is going to be their tanker. They roll it out. They haven't flown it yet. They're going to take it for a test drive. They're not ready to, it's one day before flying. And they tell their test pilot, whose name is Tex Johnston, they say, drive it around. And then at the very end, go to the end of the runway, go to full speed like you're going to take off, but don't take off, and then turn around. So he's doing it. It's going great. And then on the last turn, he says that he started to turn around, and there was a kaboom, boom. And he looked over, and the wing on the left was on the floor. And the two jet engines were on the floor. And the landing gear with the wheels was sticking up through the wing. And they had to freeze, obviously, they weren't flying tomorrow. They had to freeze everything and go back to, okay, what happened? Did we design something wrong? Well, it turned out the design was right, but there was a, f a wrong material that was used in the landing gear system. So it took six weeks to change that, get better materials, and fix that. There's another huge blow to this huge, we're going to go bankrupt if this crashes thing, and it crashed. But they, they finished it, and they flew it and the Air Force was impressed and eventually the Air Force would sign on to this and they would build around 800 of these jets for the Air Force. And the Air Force would use them, here's a picture of one filling. Uh, so the one on top is the tanker, the Boeing Dash 80, and you see that boom coming down on the end and that's actually fueling that other airplane midair so that it never has to come back down for the refuel. And this, this was step one. Remember, this is only step one of their game plan. The next challenge, we want to go to the public. But it turned out it was a lot harder than they had maybe anticipated. A lot of even pilots were concerned about this. And of course, the public who's going to ride on it. And then you have to convince the businesses like American Airlines and all of the airline companies that this is going to work. And they have a lot of skepticism from even the pilots of, how do I know that I can maneuver well enough? Does this really have the maneuver and controllability that is needed? I mean, those are some high speeds you're going to take the public at. And so that was kind of where they were at. And then there happened to be an air, airplane air, aviation convention, you could say, in Seattle, which is where Boeing is based. And they had all kinds of aviation experts who were coming to this conference. And Boeing, of course, was attending, but it wasn't a Boeing conference. And there were lots of people there. And on one of the busy days of that conference, the Tex Johnston test pilot was told to do a test flight of their airplane that they were trying to get to everybody. And he decided that he was going to fly it over this event. And it was on one of their big days when they were outside. They had an air show and stuff too. And he says that he's flying and he turned to his co-pilot and he said, so you know what I'm going to do? I think I'm going to roll it. And he said, the co-pilot turned around, 
what do you think they'll fire you? <laughs> and he said, I, I don't know. So he took this 707, which is what they called the passenger version, and it's a full-size airline jet, and he flies over this event, and as he leaves the event, he barrel rolls the entire plane. And then he said he, he was worried that some people would say, well, I couldn't tell very well. Did you actually? So he turned the plane around and rolled again <laughs> and flew over, and that broke it open. It was in the news everywhere. People took pictures of it. People were so amazed. So was Boeing, because they did not know that was going to happen. <laughs> and he had a nice chat with the president of Boeing. But from there, it broke wide open. And eventually, as we know, Boeing would become a huge presence in the airline industry from this Boeing 707 with many steps. So just remember, the optimism curve, OK? Are you going to follow Tom Cruise's example? And they're not doing it for you. Are you going to follow Dr. Belaine's example? Okay. <laughs> Remember, the optimism curve, it's a fun ride, and then it's downhill. But don't forget that you have to start climbing. Thank you. And now introducing Roger Billings. a great entrance, huh? Is there a message there? Yes, there's a message. <laughs> what is it? Kind of like I went splat. <laughs> it was a good splat. It was a very good splat. I felt good up there while I was going. Well, it's good to have everyone here tonight. You know, uh, John taught us a lot about lightning, Love but lightning. wasn't it interesting that lightning can come from a volcano? just because of all the gases going up through the air and it generates that static electricity and a forest fire can cause lightning and then the lightning can cause more forest fires. It's kind of like a virus, it just spreads. <laughs> um, I just think it's really interesting that lightning is not only beautiful and it not only makes that wonderful rolling thunder noise, but lightning manufactures fertilizer. If you love the beautiful green fields, the forests, the things that we enjoy as plant life on this earth, realize that if it wasn't for lightning, it wouldn't make that nitrogen fertilizer. It makes it out of air. By heating up the air we breathe, which is oxygen and nitrogen, the two react I, I've seen that guy on TV. It's a fly. <laughs> I, I have I seen him. I was trying it. to get him. Yeah. Out of here. Okay. Don't you name little flies? Yeah. Fritz. Fritz. <laughs> okay. Anyway, anyway, nitrogen and oxygen don't react. But when lightning is so very, very hot, a tiny amount of nitrogen nitrogen and oxygen connect in a molecule called NO. No. N-O, nitrogen oxide. No. Nitrogen oxide. Mm-hmm. And when the nitrogen oxide, the next day after the storm, gets in the sunlight, it reacts with ozone and forms nitrogen dioxide. Mm -hmm. 
and nitrogen dioxide reacts with water in the air and forms nitric acid. Not pleasant. In very, very minute quantities, and then it rains down and it fertilizes our plant. It's it smells neat. good. And yeah, the, the ozone smell after mm -hmm. a storm is beautiful. I think it's really neat that something like lightning is important to be able to support life on the earth. If it wasn't for plants, there could be no animals because that's where all of our food comes from. And if there wasn't for the sun, there could be no plants because all of the plant material is, is really capturing sunshine in the form of fruits and vegetables and leaves and stuff like that. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, whew. What do you have What is there? this? I don't know. Actually, I can see butterflies. Oh, yeah. Is this yours? No. Actually, I'm kind of excited about it. I have a new invention. Yeah. And it's so fun to get to unveil a new invention. Do you know that a lot of the breakthroughs in technology are accidents? Where people were trying to make something and it didn't work, but something else happened and they say, okay, that's what I was going to make. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I kind of knew about that because when I was quite a bit younger, I went up into the mountains because I wanted to learn to be an artist and do painting. And so I went up and I found a beautiful mountain. I lived up in the Rockies, a beautiful mountain. Set up my little canvas, got out my paints, and started painting the mountain. And after a while, the scene started to appear on my canvas. And as I got looking at it, I realized that my mountain didn't look like the mountain I was painting. It looked more like the mountain over there. But that was okay, because I just turned and started painting that mountain. <laughs> And that tells you a little bit about my art skill, <laughs> which explains why I've gone into science more. Okay. okay. But uh, this invention is something that I have invented, but I, I'm still trying to figure out what it's going to be used for. Yeah? Yeah, I have an invention. It's an amazing invention, and I need some people to help me figure out what to do with this invention. I mean, it's invented. It's ready to go. I can go into production on this. Awesome. And I'm not completely sure. It could be someone beat me to the punch. Sometimes you invent something only to find out someone invented it years ago. Mm -hmm. But you still have to invent. I mean, I, you know, I can't help it if someone invented it sooner. But the thing is, this is neat. Okay. Do you know what this can do? I don't know. Well, I'm asking the students, if you can figure out how to use this invention, just type it in there on your screen, send it to me, okay? Because I want to do something really great with this invention. They have to see it first, don't they? Should we show them? <laughs> I would like to see it. Do you want to do a drum roll or do, sure. you could do it? Ta-da! Okay. Which part do you want? The drum roll or the da-da? I don't know. I'm so excited. <laughs> Oh, I am too. I don't know what it is. My new invention. Ta-da! <laughs> wow, and a drum roll. There we go. And a, and a roll. Can I explain to you? Yeah, I must have. All well, ears. there you is, is an incredibly long piece of paper. <laughs> very, very long piece of paper all rolled up here. And see, what I was thinking uh -huh. is that we could use this for students taking a cell math. <laughs> and you could do your math 
and then if you ran out of space, you could pull some more down, and you could do your math, and you could pull some more down. But then You're I realized home, we do it on computers. You don't no, need I paper think... for a cellist, but there's got to be something else we can do no, with this. You got students going to do that. Right Anybody now? got any ideas? What could what could this be used for? Ta-da! <laughs> I think I know what it is. Wait just a minute. The artist in me is waking up. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so anyway, things are definitely okay. Let, right let, there. let me recap. Okay. <clears throat> this is an amazing technology. I'm going to enhance it just a little bit. Oh, how strong you it's are. It's angry. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Art. Art? Yeah, this no, is my no, art. No. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I named this invention Art. And I'm trying to find out what it could be used for. To clean dirty minds. <laughs> Delete that part, will you? Talk? Okay. Can we get back on track? Here? Yeah. Okay. So the idea is, this could be like a person named Art. I mean, it's my art. Take a look. Hi. Hi. Okay. Art, would you like to say something to all of the Acela students out there? Mm -hmm. Art. Listen, buddy, you need to study. Everybody that wants to learn needs to study. And if you don't study, do you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to rip you into a million pieces and flush you down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, we're not going to talk. Actually, what I want to talk about tonight is magnets. Well, we moved fast from that yes, to this. Yes, we're moving. Warp speed. <laughs> Electricity and magnetism. Okay. You remember we, we made some speakers, mm -hmm. and they made noise. Remember that? Yeah, okay. it was really neat. And we found out that if you take a piece of wire and wrap it around into a coil, and then run electricity through the wire that's coiled up, that it makes magnetism, just like this magnet. Mm -hmm. And magnets attract and they repel. Watch. As I push this one down, can, see it. can you see the yellow one going down uh -huh. too? So the yellow one's being pushed up by the orange one because it's turned the wrong way. If I flip it over, then they'll attract. Right? Mm -hmm. Let's try it again. If I turn it over, then it repels, right? And so this one, well, look at that. He, 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 you can make he. a dance. Look at that. It makes, it pushes down because magnets have the ability to repel. Now, there's something really amazing here that we ought to understand. Magnetism is kind of a seemingly magical force. In fact, I think in many ways it is magical. Forces. There's a force keeping this blue thing, this blue magnet, floating. There's another force pulling the blue magnet down. It's called gravity. It pulled it down. I didn't push it down. I just let go. We all know about gravity. Mm -hmm. And now gravity's pulling it down. 
but the yellow one's pushing it up, and the orange one's pushing the yellow one up. Those are forces, and they're competing against each other. Magnetism is a force. Isn't it interesting that you can make magnetism by running electricity through a coil? And it's the same kind of magnetism we get from this magnet. And the reason that a motor turns, like to run a Tesla or an air conditioner or even the fan on your computer, is because there's a coil inside the motor that pushes a magnet around in circles. And that's how we get propulsion for magnets, for motors. It's neat. It is amazing. And that we all knew. That's just, that's a review. Now I'm going to shoot this into space. Oh, <laughs> amazing. But tonight, I want to take this somewhere else amazing. All right. Okay. Do you know what kind of magnet this is? I don't. This is made out of a material, a magnetic material, which is a material that has a property we call ferromagnetic. Ferro is like ferrous. It has to do with iron. Iron is magnetic. You can take a steel screwdriver, and of course steel is a form of iron, and you can put it inside a coil. Over here. Okay. See, one of the biggest problems we have in the cell is, is keeping people's attention. Are you gonna, how are you going to fix Magnets. <laughs> Screwdriver okay. made out of iron. Got it. Put it inside a coil. Turn on the coil. Turn off the coil. And suddenly, it's turned into a magnet. That's how we make magnets. We put them into a magnetic field, a coil, an electricity-induced magnetic field. We turn on the coil. We turn it off. And the atoms line up all in the same direction, and so it stays magnetic. That's how we get a permanent magnet. We call them permanent magnets, but it's not really permanent because over many, many, many years, they gradually lose their magnetism because the atoms start slipping out of alignment. A material that can be magnetized, you put it in a coil, you turn on the coil, then turn it off, pull it out, it's a magnet. Anything that does that is a ferromagnetic material. It means it can be magnetized. There's some materials you can't, like glass. Glass won't magnetize, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not ferromagnetic. It's really interesting that there's a different kind of material. And this one happens to be a ferromagnetic because it's a magnet, but I'm going to pretend that it's not. What if there was a kind of material that when you put it in a coil, it becomes magnetic, but when you turn the coil off, it loses its magnetic property. That wouldn't be ferromagnetic, because ferromagnetic, when you put it in the coil, turn off the coil, it stays magnetic. But there's another kind of material that doesn't stay magnetic, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, but let me back up to this one. So if you put a piece of ferromagnetic material, like steel, into a coil, and you run direct current through it, and then turn it off, it causes the atoms to line up so that they remember their alignment, and it stays magnetic. But did you know you can erase a magnet? Mm -hmm. 
if you put the magnet right back in the same coil, only this time you don't hook up direct current, you hook up alternating current, AC like we have in our walls. You turn it on and then turn it off. It mixes all the atoms back up, and when you're done, there's no magnetism. Kind of neat to know that, isn't it? Okay, so remember, that is our ferromagnetic. Now, we're pretending that this isn't ferromagnetic. This is the kind that when there's a coil around it and you turn it on, it acts like a magnet. But when you turn off electricity, magnetism goes away. We call that kind of material paramagnetic. And you don't need to memorize that name. It will be on the final exam. <laughs> but you don't need to pass. No, you better remember. Paramagnetic, ferromagnetic. Okay? Uh -huh. And remember, this is all the exciting introduction to something big. I'm going to tell you in a minute. So okay. pay attention. It's going to get good. Okay. So I, I promise tonight it's going to be really good. But paramagnetic. When I was building my hydrogen cars, I wanted to have a system to shoot hydrogen right into the cylinder. And to do that, I needed to have a valve that would open and close. And it would open at the right time to put the gas in on the intake stroke, and then it would close, and it would wait through the exhaust stroke and everything. Then it would open again. So I made a coil out of wire, and I put a material in there. And as soon as my computer turned on the coil, it became a magnet. It opened the valve. The magnet pulled the valve open, let the hydrogen in, I turned off the power, but it stayed open because it had turned into a permanent magnet and it held itself open. So I had to make another one. Only this time, instead of using a ferromagnetic material, I used a paramagnetic material. So when I turn off the coil, cease to be a magnet. And some of you say, well, what did you use? I used stainless steel for 43. It's an alloy of stainless that is paramagnetic. And I found that by reading the literature. It also is a form of stainless that rusts. Stainless still is not supposed to rust. This one does. It rusts, but it's paramagnetic, and it worked real good on my injectors. So that's an introduction to magnets. Ferromagnetic, it means when you put it in a a magnetic field, it remembers and it stays magnetic. Paramagnetic means if you put it in a field, it becomes magnetic. As soon as you take the field away, it disappears. But there's a third kind of material, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay. Do you know what it is? I don't. Of course, because we didn't rehearse. Of course. <laughs> if no, she didn't. had been here for the rehearsal. Oh, you have it without me. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> we, this is completely unrehearsed. But it is exciting tonight. The third kind of material that I want to talk about is a material that is not paramagnetic. It's not ferromagnetic. It's a material that has a strange property. It's not a magnet. Hmm. But when it gets close to a magnet, it acts like a magnet, but in reverse. You see, with two magnets, these are both attracting, but they're too far apart to have much attraction. As they get closer, the attraction gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And when they get real close, it becomes very, very strong. And when they touch, it becomes strongest. 
because of the magnet, magnetic property, they attract each other. But what if there was a material that did the opposite? If I turn this magnet around, they'll repel, right? Mm -hmm. But what if there was a material that wasn't magnetic until it got close to a magnet? And when it got close to a magnet, then it would become repulsive to magnets. It's not a magnet, but when it gets close to one, then it tries to push away. That would be a different kind of material. And it turns out there's a lot of things in nature like that. For example, in the picture up there when you made your entrance, a drop of water. Water has this particular property. <laughs> and because of that, we can make a very strong magnetic field and we can get a drop of water to levitate. So I'm like the third thing we're going to talk about. You are like the third thing because <laughs> you have water in you. Mm -hmm. Scientists have levitated living creatures. In fact, the one they like to do it with is usually a frog. Do it with a fish. Anything that has water in the molecules, and it, it'll just levitate, float in space are we gonna in do a that magnetic here? field. That would be so fun. Well, we would like to levitate you, but we're kind of <laughs> we're going to let you warm up to it. I like that idea. I'm, right. I'm already. But think about it. Better than water with this property, though. And by the way, what do we call it? Diamagnetic. Okay? Diamagnetic. And something that is very good with this property is a thing called graphite. Like uh -huh. in a pencil lead. Uh -huh. Graphite has a very strong diamagnetic magnetic property, but there's something else that does too. Did you know that they have a, an element that's kind of named after me? You know, there's a lot of different elements, carbon, nitrogen, all these different elements, mm -hmm. but there's one called Billings, B-I, the symbol is B-I. That does sound like... Yeah, but it isn't actually Billings, it's element number 83, and it's called bismuth. Bismuth. Bismuth is a metal. It's a lot like lead. If you've ever seen a lead uh, weight or sinker that you use for fishing, piece of lead, it's kind of heavy. That's how bismuth is. But bismuth is a very, very, very interesting, magical material. And we're going to learn a little bit about it tonight. Okay. Yeah, it is going to be fun. Bismuth. Just think about it. Now, all, a lot of you know bismuth. We In do? fact, uh, yeah. Uh, this is one of the reasons you know it. Pepto-bismuth. I like bismuth. <laughs> this is actually bismuth. Really? That's how they make it. Yeah. Pepto-bismol. And since people actually ingest this, that means eat it, spoon mm -hmm. it, drink it, whatever. We know it's not very poisonous. Is it? <laughs> At least we hope not. Okay. Pepto-bismol. Well... But the form we're going to talk about tonight is not the pink version. We're going to talk about bismuth the element. If you take a piece of, of metal called bismuth and put it on your stove in a pan, mm -hmm. turn on the heat, and it heats up to about 550 degrees, it melts. It'll melt on just a regular burner on your stove, which is pretty neat when you think about it. After you melt bismuth and you let it cool down, it'll go back into the metal form. 
That's cool. Okay. The interesting thing is, though, when bismuth goes back into the crystal or the metallic form and starts cooling down, it reacts with oxygen in the air and forms a very, very, very thin layer of bismuth oxide. Very, very thin. It's so thin that it does weird things with light. When light reflects off that little thin coating, it changes the color of the light. And so when you melt bismuth and you let it cool down, it's just silver, shiny like any other metal. But as it starts cooling down in the presence of oxygen, it changes color. And it gives very, very brilliant colors. And the color that it changes to depends on what temperature it is when you expose it to the oxygen. If you let it get to the oxygen when it's real hot, then you're going to get blue. And you let it be a different temperature, it's going to be green, red, all of these orange, beautiful colors. May I show you some bismuth crystals? Love to see it. Okay, I have many bismuth crystals to show you. Let it roll. Aren't they beautiful? Uh -huh. oh, goodness. So these crystals grow in molten bismuth, which could be in a pan on your stove. Aren't they beautiful? That is neat. They turned my music down. How heartbreaking. There, they bring that's it back. That's pretty. I worked hard to put that <laughs> beautiful music on there. But look at all the different shapes and all the different colors, and that's just from the oxide lake there. So what do you think? Now, I have an idea. Intriguing. If you, do you like them? I love it. You love the bismuth crystals? I do. What if we do another session on bismuth a little later? And what if we actually melt some mm -hmm. and make some crystals? And you know, to get big, beautiful crystals like these pictures that I garnered from the internet, uh -huh. <laughs> you have to be pretty clever. I mean, it's easy to make little ones, uh -huh. but these guys have made some really big, big, amazing crystals. And I think it would be fun for us to make some big ones and to kind of learn about it. But remember, the reason we started talking about bismuth is because it's diamagnetic. And that means if a magnet gets close to it, it pushes the magnet away. And because of that, it has an amazing property of being able to do levitation. If I have a big piece of bismuth here, and I take a very strong magnet and set on top of it, it will actually push the magnet up so it will float in midair. No electricity, no batteries, it'll just float. And for 100 years from now, it'll still be floating. Now, it doesn't float very high like that because the push of the diamagnetism is a weak force. And the weight of the back battery is being pulled down by gravity, and that's a stronger force. So those two forces are fighting. And so what some very clever people have done is they put another magnet up on top to help lift the weight of gravity so that it can float better. But because of the diamagnetic property of bismuth, it's stabilized. If you try to put 
a magnet on top of another magnet and just have, I'm going to see if I can get it just right where it floats. You never can. It's not stable. It, oops, you've got to get it repelled. There's a force holding it up, but unless you have something like this stick here to keep it from flying off, it will always go off the side, but with bismuth, it's different. Now, there's a really talented artist that lives over in Kentucky, and he has a whole business with bismuth. In fact, if you ask him what he does for a living, he would probably say to you, it's none of your bismuth. Right? And his clever. name is Ernie. Uh -huh. And if anybody is really, really intrigued with Ernie, and, and some of us should be, because he's very, very talented and very devoted to what he and his son are doing. But you can find out about him because he calls it? Element 83. Element 83. Remember, bismuth mm -hmm. is number 83 on the chart of, of elements. And so he's created a business That's called fun. Element 83. Go look him up. And he makes all kinds of jewelry and things out of these beautiful bismuth crystals. In fact, he made this contraption. What is it? Which I'm going to share with you for a minute. This is a bismuth crystal on top and a bismuth crystal on bottom. And in between, we have the opportunity to be able to levitate a magnet using this diamagnetic property of bismuth. And as you can see... He's made this really beautiful. Mm -hmm. He's got a, an amazing, beautiful, beautiful design here. And I'm going to turn it so maybe you can see it a little better. All right? And these are crystals. So I'd like now to uh -oh. Uh, show you. Uh-oh. Is that what you said? Uh-oh. <laughs> delete that part, too. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of deletes tonight if you keep this up. Okay. <sighs> I'd like to zoom in before... Uh, we, we started tonight. We took a little bit of, of footage, and I want to show you that. But before I show you that, I'd like to let you see a photograph of this amazing artist that made this. Have you got a, a picture of him for us, Ernie? There he is. Hi. Everybody give a shout-out to Kentucky. Hello. There he is. He's a very talented guy, and I'm very grateful that he shared this wonderful piece of technology and his art here. Now, I'm going back here. On top here is a powerful magnet. And it's on a screw, so I can screw it up and down. And then there's a piece of bismuth crystal that he's formed. And another one here, and just a little gap in between where I can put something like a, a strong magnet. Now let's show you these crystals. Here we go. Can you see? This is the bottom piece. And we put it there like so. Okay, and here's the top piece. Can you see these beautiful crystals and the magnet on top? amazing. Okay, so we're going to put it on top here, and we have a missing magnet. Okay, and it's on the side. Our magnet fell off. Now it's on the other side. <laughs> Hello, magnet. Please come out. I've got the magnet. Now I'm going to slip this thing back in here, which is kind of hard to do because it wants to go back on the side here. Why don't you sing a song or something? <laughs> this is a wonderful thing about research <laughs> is you get to do things. And this thing has slipped off a little bit on me, got bumped. Yeah, I think it's about the right spacing. Pretty close. 
Okay, so I've got the little magnet here, and I'm going to crank this up just a hair so that we can make this little thing rise. Now, I want to show you a close-up of, of adjusting this. Let's go ahead and run it. Now, look in here. Yeah, we had some nice footage here. Look in this little crack, wow. and you can see the little, the little teeny square. Now, as I crank this top magnet up and down, it makes the little magnet inside go up and down. Let's watch that. Okay, up, you see that? Down. Isn't that pretty cool? That's amazing. And this is levitation with the diamagnetic property of bismuth. And it's really an amazing technology, isn't it? Okay, let's, let's hear it for Mr. So, Dr. Page, what do you think? I think it's amazing. It is really amazing. I'm very intrigued isn't it? with this. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's beautiful, too. It is amazing and it's beautiful. And it's something that has some tremendous potential. Now, we learned not uh, too many years ago that this element, bismuth, uh -huh. is actually radioactive. Oh. You know, like uranium and plutonium and things. And of course, radioactive is kind of dangerous because. Mm -hmm some of the atoms are breaking apart and giving off energy particles that could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. But in the case of bismuth, it does it so slow. We oh. didn't even know it was radioactive, and it really isn't dangerous. And so you can still use Pepto-Bismol. Okay. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, if we will leave this crystal here, mm -hmm. very, very slowly, one atom will decay, give off energy, then another will, and in just about 1,500 billion years, <laughs> it will be gone. Wow. It'll just all disappear, it'll all break down. Uh, so that's a very long half-life, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem to have radioactive properties, but it's really, really neat material, and it's very, very beautiful. It is. Um, it's interesting to me that the difference between bismuth and lead has to do with the number of protons in the nucleus, which matches the number of electrons going around it. And you add another proton, you add another electron, and you get a new material. And you add another proton, add another electron, and you get new material. And every material has completely different properties. Amazing. And that's what's so magic. Now, why do we have this diamagnetic property? Why does it do this? Why is it when you bring a magnet close, it turns into a magnet repeller? Yeah. And the magnet repeller is what lifts that little magnet off of the bismuth. And it has to do with two electrons in the outer shell that are spinning the same direction and allow a little current to go around. Electric current, remember when electric current runs around like through a coil, it creates a magnetic field. Well, this one runs around and creates this repulsive force. And I think it's really neat. It is, it is so really bismuth neat. So bismuth is something that you all know about now. Element number 83 is something that uh, is very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think we should make 
some bismuth crystals. In fact, this thing is so neat. I mean, I've talked to Ernie, but I'd like to make a really big one. <laughs> He's so neat. I mean, a really big one for over at the new tower. Uh, by, by the way, them. today they put up the gold key name around the top of the 10-story tower from all down the road, which we're kind of excited about. We'll be showing that. We did get our new office finished, mm -hmm. and now we're waiting for the rest of the furniture to come, and then we're going to do another tour down that way. And it turned out, did it turn out nice? It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> I've got this giant, remember the flying saucer-shaped office? It's beautiful. And this week, we put the Bill Lear desk in we it, did. which some of the students here refinished and did a beautiful, amazing job. And, and I'll show you all of that. It is, it is really exciting to think that my mentor's desk is now in that 10-story office. So that's all coming up as are more bismuth, bismuth crystals. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Love it. Kids like it, too. They're it's really, awesome. really interesting stuff, isn't it? And it's amazing. It will melt at a temperature. You can do it in a pan on your stove. You can't do that with stainless steel or titanium or other metals. It's amazing that all of these elements are so different. And a lot of what we do in science is study their properties so that we can figure out how to make things that we want to make like a very long roll of paper. <laughs> it's very handy. Or, yeah, yeah. what do you use it for? I don't know. Really? Do we want to go And back? with that, we'll say, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>